0: And the reading is from the book of Acts, chapter 2, and you'll find it in the Pew Bibles on page 1093. The Acts, chapter 2, commencing to read at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, the crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one of them heard was heard speaking in his own language, utterly amazed, they asked, "Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia?" Some, however, made fun of them and said, They have had too much wine. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews, and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be darkened and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Thanks, Stephen. Well, keep that passage open in front of you. Let me pray, and then uh, we'll look at it together. Father, please now open our eyes, that we might behold extraordinary things in your words, things not written that are just historic and therefore in the past, but something which is now true of us as well. May the truths of this passage change how we live. Day by day, we pray. Amen. Audrey mentioned the Archbishop of Canterbury. I want to start with some words that he addressed to General Synods in uh, February of this year. It's quite a lengthy uh, um, quote, and I want to read them for you now. For too long, the ministry of evangelism in the church has been viewed as an app on the system. I don't know what kind of apps you have on your mobile device, but some of you will know that apps are simply add-ons, optional extras, suited to those particular interests and activities. As I said, for many it seems that evangelism is such an app, simply to be used for those who are gifted, who don't mind being out of their comfort zones, who are happy talking about faith with strangers, and have a clever way of explaining the mysteries of God's love. But evangelism and witness are not an app. They are the operating system itself. Evangelism is the proclamation, the setting forth, the holding out of the good news of Jesus Christ in ways that do justice to the beauty, integrity, joy and power of the one who was dead and is now alive. The one who lived for us, died for us, rose for us, ascended and praised for us. It is from God, about God, with God and because of God. Above all, he calls and enables us to be his heralds, those who proclaim the good news. All Christians are witnesses of the love of Jesus Christ. The Spirit comes to us precisely for this task. And as witnesses of Jesus, we then become witnesses to Jesus, relaying what we have experienced and what we have known to others. Audrey asked, did the archbishop suggest we might pray? Now I get a feeling he was telling us to get on and do it, and not just pray, but just to get out there. Don't you think? What he told Synod, I think he's what's saying to us. And I want to state at the outset this morning what we made very clear in our vision statement right at the beginning of this year, that the operating system, the thing that drives everything we do as a church here, must be evangelism. I want to state it very, very clearly. I remember a conversation many years ago before I was ordained. A vicar who I respected enormously of a very growing church, a church that grew from next to none to about four or five hundred. And he said to me this no church should ever have an outreach team. No church should ever have an outreach team. And I was shocked at first. And then he explained. He said, evangelism must permeate every part of church life. It must be the reason we do what we do. Uh, The ultimate reason, sorry, for what way we do what we do is ultimately to make Jesus known. Evangelism should be the agenda of every team in our churches, the pastoral team, the worship team, the buildings team, discipleship, small groups, finance. Evangelism should percolate and permeate all of them because they are all being done in order that we might make Jesus known to a hurting, broken world. Last weekend, those of you who are away, uh, missed out on the fact that we were given a gift as a church. Edward Mason, our guest speaker, we were down at the seaside, presented us as a church with a stick of rock. He told me I had to smash it up and give it out. Well, I'm going to do that next week because I need to use it as an illustration. If I smash it up now, it's lost for the next services that I'm preaching at. Now, of course, he gave it to us because, of course, wherever you break it, there are the words torquay, so that we might remember torquay. Actually, that wasn't why he told us to do this. Of course, he had been talking to us supremely about, from Philippians, things like love and joy and unity, and how those were things that, like that word torquay, were words that were to run through the very very. A sort of fabric and fibre of our church that whatever you cut this church wherever you broke it, wherever you went you would find love and joy and unity is that roughly what he says? well I want to suggest to you that another one of those words is evangelism that wherever you cut this church you find the word evangelism because you don't have a joy team do you? those who go and do joy on behalf of everybody else you don't have a unity team, who kind of, like a SWAT team, who are sort of flown in to go and suddenly deal with mess when it starts and then disappear again. You don't have a love team. Now That goes through everything. And I think what Archbishop Welby is saying, and what I believe this passage is going to say to us, is that evangelism, being ready to speak about the wonders that God has done in our lives, should go through everything that we do. I will break it next week, I promise. You can all come and break your teeth on it. You see, that is why the Archbishops of York and Canterbury have called for a great wave of prayer for evangelism that was to culminate today. But actually, I don't want it to culminate in today. I want it to kind of, in a sense, find its focus today and then go on. That actually the key for us as a church now is, are we praying for evangelism? Is that what we pray for most? Yesterday was so exciting, I'll say more about it a bit later. But why Pentecost Sunday? Why Pentecost Sunday is a great focus for our prayer and our thinking about evangelism? Well, I want to tell you this, that I believe the coming of the Holy Spirit, as explained to us in Acts 2, is supremely about evangelism. It is supremely about evangelism. The Holy Spirit has come to empower his church for evangelism, and I want to show you the evidence. Firstly, the anticipation of Pentecost shows that to be true. Just look at back at Acts 1 and verse 8. You'll know these words very well. As Before Jesus ascends to heaven, he tells the, uh, the disciples not to leave Jerusalem. He says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You see, he makes the link very, very clear. Why have we been given the Holy Spirit? so that we might be witnesses to Jesus to the ends of the earth. You see, what I tend to find when people talk about the Holy Spirit these days is, it becomes very me-centered. What does the Holy Spirit do for me? You know, yes, the Holy Spirit is a gift to me, and yes, he does come that we might have an amazing time in worship, that we might feel especially the closeness and presence of God, that we might see amazing things happening so that my life might be filled with power to face the struggles of every day. Yes, those are all true, but that is not supremely why the Holy Spirit came. He did not come on us in order to kind of stroke us. He came on us that we might go out and proclaim Christ to others, that we might make known the wonderful deeds of God. Secondly, not just the anticipation of the day of Pentecost, is all about evangelism, the occasion of Pentecost. Shows that evangelism is the heart of the Holy Spirit's work. The day of Pentecost was 50 days after Passover. In fact, the word Pentecost means the 50th. It was often called the Feast of Weeks, as in weeks, as in, you know, seven days a week. And it was because there were 49 days that came before it. 49 is what? Seven times seven. Seven days in a week. Seven weeks. It is a week of weeks. Do you see? That's why they called it the Feast of Weeks. And Passover occurred in mid April, so Pentecost uh, always happens at the beginning of June. It was the best attended of all the great feasts. Why? Because the travelling conditions were at their best. It is estimated that in a population, normally I think of about 50,000, 60,000, there was upwards of a quarter of a million people in Jerusalem for that festival. Can you imagine? And the detail that tells us here that literally the whole world was there. We're told that people heard languages which represented pretty much the whole of the known world as the people there knew it. Rome was seen to be the ends of the earth. That's why in the book of Acts, kind of the whole thing, I think Edward told us this last weekend, is moving towards the gospel, moving out Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Where's the ends of the earth? Rome. That's the place it's going, Rome. And we've got here, even people from Rome are here. Literally, the whole world is in Jerusalem right now, or at least represented. So do you see the beginning of that fulfillment? Wait for the Holy Spirit, and you'll be my witnesses to the whole world. Well, here we are symbolically. The Holy Spirit has come, and symbolically, you are now ready to undertake the task I've given to you, the task the Spirit's come for. But it goes deeper than that. The day of Pentecost was a harvest festival. It was also known as the Feast of first fruits. And it was emphasised by a special offering of two baked loaves, which were made from freshly gathered wheat. And they were described in Leviticus 23.17 as the firstfruits to the Lord. You begin to see how symbolic then this day is. The Holy Spirit comes on his people, about 120 of them, They, under the power of the Spirit, begin to declare the praises of God. Peter gets up and preaches the most extraordinary sermon, and 3,000 are converted on that very first Pentecost Sunday. They are the first fruits of an even greater harvest. Remember what Jesus says in a bit of Matthew that we have yet to get to in Matthew 9? Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful. But the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Pentecost is the first fruits of God's great mission to bring the good news of Christ to the whole world. And he urges them to pray for others to come on and take that mission on. Who were they praying for? Who were those disciples praying for? Thank you. Take a look at the person next to you. Go on. Don't be so reluctant to look at the person next to you. Go on. Some of you husbands and wives can barely turn and look. Look at each other. Look each other in the eye. You're really struggling, aren't you? But the disciples were praying for you and for me. that in 2016, in Trull and in Taunton, there would be workers who would go out into the harvest field. The problem is not that there's not a harvest. The problem is... There's not people going out there to to bring the harvest in. The disciples were praying for you and for me that we would continue that work. But you see, firstly, the anticipation of Pentecost is all about evangelism. The uh, 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 sort of setting of Pentecost is all about evangelism. And then thirdly, the events of Pentecost, I think, again, show evangelism is at the core of what this church is to be. And I want to pick out the three key symbols that come out of the events. Firstly, do you notice the wind? Perhaps it starts as a breeze just starting to go through the room and the shutters start to just flap a little. But you get a sense that the wind gets much more violent. Literally, I think it says, an echoing sound as of a mighty wind born violently. This is a violent tornado that literally flies through the house where they're sat praying. You can imagine their robes are flapping, their hair is all over the place, there is crockery flying across the room, smashing everywhere. In some ways it would have been terrifying. The Hebrew word for wind is ruach, and the Greek word for winds is pneuma, and they both are used also of the Holy Spirit. And immediately it would have brought to the mind of first century Jews another image that comes from the Old Testament. Anyone guess what it might be? Uh, Now we'll get to that a bit later. I think he takes us back to Ezekiel. I wonder if you know the prophet Ezekiel. At one point in chapter 7, Ezekiel is taken to a valley of dry bones. They are a depressing image of God's people now dead. Not literally dead, but actually a picture of what they are. In a sense, they, they have walked away from God. They're just going through it's a lifeless religion. Oh yeah, they'll talk of God. They'll talk of many gods. They have lost connection to their God, the God who loved them and saved them. And their picture now is just dry, dry bone. And Ezekiel uses the word rock. Winds, to describe a wind that begins to move across that valley, as he spoke these words that God had given him, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceeding great army. And if you know the detail, it all gets a bit gory as the bones begin to clatter and the the sort of sinews and the muscles and the flesh and all that start to build around the bodies. You know, been, that would have been sort of 18 certificate stuff, I think, as you watched it happening. But suddenly, what was once bones and death, now is a great mighty army, ready, prepared to go and be what Israel was always meant to be, a light to the Gentiles, share the good news of Christ, of God, with others. See, Pentecost is a moment when God raises an army of spirit-filled, joy-filled people ready to bear witness to the remarkable work of God in their lives. That is what you see here, isn't it? Suddenly 120 people who are quietly sat in a room suddenly become 120 people who now can go and literally change the world. All because the Holy Spirit of God, the life-giving Spirit of God comes on them. The problem is in this country is that most people see the church as like that valley of dry bones, don't they? That's how most people in this world see the church. They look at this, for them, fusty old building. They don't even notice we're in here. And everything on the media says we're dead. How are they going to discover we're not dead? How are they going to discover we're not there? Get out there. And be joyous, spirit-filled people. People in whom the presence of God is there and who are just joyfully telling people, wow, God has done amazing things in my life. And to think more like an army, now please I am very careful of military language when it comes to the Christian life. I know we love singing. Oh you know, onward Christian soldiers. But it can conjure up some difficult images. But I suppose I sit a bit like the twenty-five of us that yesterday headed out into troll, to pray, because actually that is the only weapon we have. We can't go and bash people's doors down and make them Christians. No, we're not asked to do that. I mean, that's what has happened in the past many centuries ago, and it is abhorrent that that's the way it was done. And Paul said to the Colossians, pray that God might open a door for my message. That's what we have. We don't go and bash doors down. We don't Bible bash people. We pray that God would open doors. And that's what we were doing, wasn't it, as we uh, uh, walked around uh, the village yesterday. And it was incredibly powerful. As I stood there praying, I saw people I knew, people whose situations I knew, and I thought, I feel utterly powerless to do anything about it. And then suddenly I thought, my goodness, I'm standing here with the presence of a God who could do anything in their lives. He could do anything. Pentecost is about raising up an army, or maybe just a group of confidence, joy-filled, love-filled people who know that they have the power of God at literally their fingertips as they pray for people, as they head out. And I pray that we will more and more go out in teams and pray across this village together. So that's the first thing, wins. Secondly, fire. In Jewish history, fire was symbolic of the very presence of God himself. Remember the burning bush as Moses encounters the presence of the living gods and speaks with him? Remember the fiery pillar and as well as the cloud that led the people through Israel uh, to the desert, through the desert, sorry. But perhaps supremely. do you remember the events that happened as they gathered at Mount Sinai? Remember what happened at Mount Sinai? Do you remember, it's the moment when uh, they were going to come and hear the law given, but they were told, don't come too close. Why? Because God is coming. And in fact, they were told, we need to keep you away, because if you, any of you even touch the mountain, you're going to die. Even if you touch it... Keep away. Why? Because the presence of a holy God is coming, and we are unclean. That's why they had to wash their clothes for three days before, symbolically to remind them they're dirty, they're unclean before God, and the holy God is coming. And if we go on the mountain, we will be consumed by him. And we're told that eventually uh, Moses goes up, and uh, there is uh, the mountain, we're told, was covered in smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. Guess what the day of Pentecost was? It was celebrated as the anniversary of guess what? giving of the law at Mount Sinai. Isn't that extraordinary? That here the very presence, the holy presence of God comes and descends, and the fire alights on each individual. But what doesn't happen to them? They're not consumed. <laughs> There is nothing to fear. That is the gospel we have to share with our worlds. That God is not someone to be scared of or kept at arm's length, but a God who longs to come close. And because of Jesus Christ and his forgiveness that he wins for us on the cross and through his resurrection, the holy presence of God can come and live in us, upon us, inside us. And notice it's not a general fire, it alights on every single one. And what that tells me is this, is that when you go into the office tomorrow, when you go to school tomorrow, when you go to the WI or wherever you go tomorrow, guess who goes with you? The holy presence of the living God goes with you. The, New Testament, the Old Testament people of God could never have conceived of what you now take for granted each and every day, that the holy presence of God could be in them and they wouldn't be consumed by it but rather empowered by it. And that means that when you go into your office or into your school or wherever you go, people's experience of God will primarily come where? Through you. You will be the means by which people taste the presence of God. Or in Paul's words, you will be the aroma of Christ. You will spread the presence and the impact of that presence in those places as you live for him, as you allow his Holy Spirit to transform you. Then finally there are utterances. It's a bit sad, I find, that um, it can easily turn into arguments over what exactly speaking in tongues mean. And I don't think this particular passage is one of those that we need to be worrying about, about those arguments. So it seems to me that speaking in tongues here is really clear uh, for one reason and one reason alone, it is this that everyone in the crowd is enabled to speak the wonderful deeds of of God's gospel to everyone else in that crowd. That is, every Christian is enabled to speak the word of God clearly to those who are not yet Christians in ways that they can understand. That seems to me clearly what this is about. And in fact, when Peter goes on to explain all these things, they think they're drunk. He says, they're not drunk. Let me show you. This is what Joel said would happen. What did Joel say would happen? We say, up to now, the Holy Spirit has only come on certain people at certain times to give them the gift to speak to others. Certain key people. But now things change. Now every single person who knows the Lord Jesus will receive the Spirit. And they will all, whether they're men or women, young or old, servant or free, every single one, no matter what they're standing in life, will be empowered to speak of me to others. And it's vital we do. Why? Because there is a picture there in verse 20 of judgment. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. People need to hear the gospel. Because a judgment is coming. And if they do not hear it, if they do not hear the name of Jesus proclaimed and explained to them, then there will be dire consequences. But for those who do hear, Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That is why the Holy Spirit's come. Because the day of judgment is coming. The name of Jesus can save people from that day of judgment, and we have been given the glorious knowledge of it and the power to go out and share it with others. So he says, go on, get on with it, get out there. You have everything you need. You know Jesus, you've got the power of the Spirit, and you know why you've got to do it. Now go. Evangelism must now be the operating system part of our So what are we going to do first? Well, we're going to continue to do the things we're doing, but I want to give you a challenge. The Archbishop gave a challenge. I want to offer you a little bit of leather. Okay? And I've got it on here. I'm modelling it. You're only going to take it if you're going to use it, because I've got enough to get, give everyone tonight if you aren't going to use it. Is that What we've been asked to do is to tie five knots in it. And for each knot, think of somebody that you spend reasonable amounts of time with. Work, home, wherever. Five. And pledge to pray for them. And I've given you all their little sheets. you all get that in your notice sheets? Which is to pray blessing upon them. Not just pray that they come to Christ, but pray blessing. Pray for their bodies, their, their work, their emotional. Their, that's what it is. B-L-E-S-S. I'll leave you to do it because we're running out of time. But I'm going to ask you this week to go away and think of five people who you will likely to bump into over the next few weeks, and start to pray for them. And I want to ask you, at least with one or two, to tell them that you're praying for them. But actually, you know I'm praying for you at the moment. Is there anything particular I can pray for you? Now, there's a challenge. Okay, up for it? Up for it? Yeah. Go. Let's pray. Father, it seems to me the message of Pentecost is clear and simple, evangelism, sharing faith with others. Father, please now help us to go and do this. To do this in the name of Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.